First Peter chapter 1. And we're just going to read a few verses out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. This is a departure from our study in Revelation for a little while. But we want to go to 1 Peter this morning. So if you found 1 Peter chapter 1... Follow along as we read verses 13 through 16. The Bible says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray before we get into our message this morning. Lord God, again, we need your help at this juncture of our service. We need your spirit to work in us and to do your work through him to help us to understand the things that you have for us today. Lord, we know that your word is truth, and so I pray that you'd help us to listen to it, to submit ourselves to it today. Your message is important. It is the substance of our lives. It is what draws us to you. It's what helps us to grow. And so I pray that you would use it today to accomplish your work in each one of us. Lord, help us to pay attention, to give you the time, the attention that you deserve. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I speak, that you would give me strength of voice and mind, and just fill me with your spirit. Lord, I need your help to speak the truth, to give us the message that you want us to hear today, to challenge us from your word, so that you might have all the glory and praise in this time. We thank you for what you're going to do now, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There are those times in pastoral ministry when I have set a plan As far as what I'm going to preach for the next couple of weeks or next couple of months in some cases and, you know, settle on what book or what series we're going to study for a while together. And then in the middle of that process, uh, God seems to change gears and he puts me in a new direction. Today is one of those days, okay? Just to let you know what my week entailed, I had planned on preaching Revelation chapter 4 today. In fact, I've studied most of the week in Revelation chapter 4, preparing a message. And even though my message was coming together for that, God would not give me peace about it, and I just struggled with it. And in fact, for several months, God has put this burden on my heart to preach an important truth, to share the truth of his word about a certain thing that needs to be taught and understood by all of us if we are to move forward in our Christian lives and continue to grow. So I was talking with Pastor Brandon yesterday morning for a little bit, and I told him this. And here's what his advice is. The Bible says in a multitude of counselors there's safety. So his advice, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if God's leading you to preach something else, don't wait till 2 or 3 in the morning Saturday night to get on board. Start now preparing for it. And so yesterday morning was kind of my catalyst, and 
God spoke through him to give me the wise counsel that I needed, and I'm going to heed that counsel. So here we are in 1 Peter rather than in Revelation chapter 4. We'll get back to Revelation 4 eventually in God's time. But today I want to start a short series on holiness, what it means, what it is, what has God called us to when he says, be ye holy as I am holy. I think there's a huge misunderstanding in Christian circles and in churches about that word. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Okay, That was the proclamation of the angels at the throne room of God. They continue to do that all the time. That was their praise of the Lord. And that is the, the essence of his character is holiness. And so if we are called to be holy, then I think we should understand what holiness actually is so that we can understand what we're looking for, what God wants to produce in us. So before we get back to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to go to Mark chapter 7. And I want you to go to Mark chapter 7 because the Bible gives us a great example in an account in Jesus' life that becomes a perfect starting point for us in our message today and in our study Of holiness. Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at several scriptures this morning. But in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, this is a situation where the Pharisees are watching Jesus and his disciples eating. Not a huge event, just a normal everyday occurrence. But there was a problem, and we're going to read about that problem and the problem that the Pharisees point out to him. So starting at verse 1, it says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be when they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? And this is Jesus in verse 6. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, that this people dishonoreth, I'm sorry, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the traditions of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Now, the condemnation that Christ had for the Pharisees is very strong here. But we have a a real important biblical truth that comes from a seemingly very insignificant occurrence, okay? But this truth is so important, I would say this. If we miss this one truth, our spiritual lives will not be, and in fact cannot be, what God intends for us to be as believers, okay? Missing this principle is one of the main reasons why Christians are so frustrated with their lack of growth, with their lack of blessing, and why they have trouble finding God's will in their lives, because they miss this beginning point. Now, 
I'm not going to give you that point yet. We'll get to it. But I want to ask you a question. When you were growing up, how many of you had a mom that insisted you washed your hands all the time, especially before meals? Okay, I did. My mom, I wouldn't call her a clean freak, but we were not allowed to come to the table to eat unless our hands were clean. Okay, that was just one of her rules. Now, I have to tell you a little bit about my childhood to help you understand how important that was. When we were kids growing up, my mom would give us breakfast in the summertime, spring and summer. And then after breakfast, since we weren't in school, she would send us out into the yard to work in our garden. Our garden was a quarter acre large. We didn't have automated motorized machines. We dug that thing by hand. We weeded it by hand. We raked it by hand. And there was three of us boys that were responsible for that. So she would send us out into this garden to work all day. And so coming in, after working in the garden, you can imagine what our hands looked like. But she would send us directly to the bathroom in the sink and say, wash your hands or you can't eat. Okay? She was as diligent about the washing of hands, I think, as the Pharisees were. Okay, if we came with unwashed hands, we were excoriated and exiled from the room until we came back with hands that were sparkling clean. And this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing here to Jesus' disciples. Okay, the Pharisees, again, remember, they thought they were the most spiritual, holy people on the planet. That was their perspective. And here they are criticizing Jesus for letting his little band of misfit ragtags eat their meal without washing their hands. Now, for them, it wasn't just about dirty hands, because for the Pharisees, they looked at the outward as a reflection of the inward. And so if you had unwashed hands, that means there was something spiritually wrong with you. If you didn't wash your hands before you ate, you might as well be a heathen to them. And that's what they're criticizing the disciples for here. And this is where Jesus has to correct them for their greatest error. In verse 8 and 9, he corrects them on this error. And if you look at verses 8 and 9, he said, For the laying aside of the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well, ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition." Now, here is the problem when we talk about holiness in the church of God or holiness in the Christian's life. Most Christians do not understand holiness, and so they create a version of holiness that meets their standard, just like the Pharisees did. They have their own traditions, their own standards, their own practices, their own rituals that they will say, well, if I do all these things, that makes me holy. And just like Jesus corrected the Pharisees, we need to be corrected that holiness, first of all, is not about our standard. It's God's standard. So holiness starts with God. It doesn't start with us. It starts with who God is. And if we don't see who God is and then understand that from the very beginning, we're going to miss the whole point. So the problem of the Pharisees is the same that many self-proclaimed Christians have that are seeking holiness. We equate holiness with our external actions and appearance, and we totally ignore the inward state of our heart. 
Now, many people will argue with that. They'll say, no, 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 you don't understand. God saved me. I'm holy inside. You know, and I've had people tell me, God knows the inside, so what's on the outside doesn't matter. Now, that's not what Jesus said here either. He said, you focus on the outside, but you forget about the inside. He said in another place that what's on the inside will be reflected in what comes out. It's from, what, from within is what defiles a man. But the real issue here is that we focus on the outward rather than the inward when we talk about this issue of holiness. And so we tend to try to conform our outward lives and our performance to some standard that we have decided this is what holiness is. And even though our outward performance may look good, inwardly we're still selfish, we're still scheming to get our own way, we're still living for our own pleasure and our own entertainment, And when the going gets tough in our life, and when we have tough people and tough circumstances, then we have those little slips of the tongue, or those bursts of anger show forth and break through the polished facade that we want to present to everybody else. And we go, oh, well, that, you know, that was a moment of weakness. No, the truth is, what comes out when we're shaken is what we really are. We want to put up a polished facade of some temple, a great Christian holy life, so other people can see it. But we don't spend enough time being concerned about what's really inside. And when those slips happen, those aren't slips. We want to excuse them. We say, oh, well, you know, uh, the devil made me do it, whatever. Okay, no, that's what we really are, folks. What comes out when things don't go our way or meet our approval is what we really are. Now, if you read through the New Testament and the Gospels and look at the response of the Pharisees to some of Jesus' teaching and condemnation, that exposed who they really were, okay? All of a sudden, their religious facade fell apart in front of the truly holy one. And the same goes for us. When we look at God, when we look at Jesus Christ as our example of holiness in our lives— our holiness and the facade of perfection or Christianity that we want to put out falls apart. And when we come to consider what God has called us to as believers, then it becomes an extremely important matter. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1 we read this, the Apostle Peter writes to believers, as obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance. See, that's what we are. That's what we really were. He says, but you're supposed to be obedient now. In verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. So there's a contrast. What we used to be versus what we're supposed to be. Not outwardly just, but inwardly. There's supposed to be a change here. And that starts with our thinking. So the Bible calls us here at 1 Peter as believers to be holy as God is holy. Now when we look at God's holiness, we can say God's holiness is defined by his perfection in all of his qualities. His love is perfect. His justice is perfect. His mercy is perfect. His strength is perfect. His presence is perfect. There's no way he could get better in any of those because he has reached the epitome, and gone beyond the limits. And he's perfect. 
And then we look at that call to be holy as he is holy. And we go, well, I can't ever do that. There's no way I could be perfect. And that's true because we're in a human flesh and we have a sinful nature. And so we're never going to attain that. We're never going to become God. But when he calls us to be holy or to be perfect, what he wants us to become is mature and complete in him. So that he is reflected in our lives rather than what Peter calls the, the former lusts of your ignorance. Now, in this passage, there's several references to holiness. But there's also several references to our understanding, to our mind, to our, he talks about ignorance here, what we know, okay, and what we understand. So the question is, when God calls us to be holy, how can we become holy? Because we're marred by a sin nature. The, the point is, we're supposed to be continually becoming more like Christ, as the Holy Spirit does his work in us. And when the Holy Spirit works in us, he uses his truth to convict us of things so that we let go of them and he removes them from us. It's called repentance, forsaking sin. Okay, That's part of God producing holiness in us. We repent of sin. We let go of what we were as selfish, self-centered people and we become more like what Christ was. And so in 1 Peter 1, we have this command to be holy. This is not the only place in the New Testament that God has called us to this. He says it many other times in many other ways, but I want to read some to you from Scripture that give us the idea of what holiness should be as far as God producing it in us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, we are told to mortify the deeds of the body. That means to kill the things that I would do to make myself good. Basically, Paul's saying, stop trying to be holy. You can't do it. Kill the old man. Because that's what the old man does, is try to be good enough. We can't do it. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, warns us not to make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That means we don't live planning to serve ourselves. That's what we used to do. But that's not what holiness is. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, tells us to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. See, when we serve the flesh, we damage the spiritual nature. 1 John chapter 2, and verse 15, you know this verse? It says to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, tells us to put off the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Get rid of what we used to be. Stop living for yourself. Ephesians chapter 6, we're supposed to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's God's righteousness in Christ. Put it on. So there's action that's involved here. And so in this command to be holy, there are things we have to do. But we can't make ourselves holy and we can't prove ourselves holy before God by trying harder to do them. Just like salvation in faith, and this is what I believe faith really is, faith is understanding the truth of God first about myself and about God and what he's done for me, and then submitting myself to it. Because if you never submit to God, you really haven't accepted his truth. And the same thing happens in holiness. 
As believers, we read the truth. We read those verses that I just read. We go, yeah, I agree with that. But then in our daily lives, we may put up a good show with people, but inside, all of this is still happening that Paul and other apostles have told us it has to go. But we want to hold on to it because that's the person we want to be. As long as we put up a good front, we're good. And here's the biggest misconception of the process of holiness for many believers. Just like, holiness, or just like salvation, holiness is produced inside first. Salvation is not an outward change. Salvation is a change of heart. And that's what holiness is. It happens inside of us. And it starts with our thinking process. There are so many references in Scripture to our thinking being changed when we're saved that we can't ignore it. It is an intellectual assent to the truth. I accept the truth of God, but then I submit myself to it. And holiness is based on the same premise. So unless we change our thinking and our inward leanings and our intuition, nothing we do on the outside matters. If the inside hasn't changed, the outside doesn't count for anything. Now, I had a, a great mentor in business years ago and we used to meet on a weekly basis and he would say this if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you've always got now you can take that truth and change your life if you really apply it but what's the problem with most Christians we always do what we've always done we don't want to change we're comfortable in our life We're comfortable in our Christianity. We're comfortable in what we've decided are the standards of holiness for me. And so nothing will ever change. But God wants us to change. We're supposed to continually be changing, continually be moving toward holiness, and that requires us to submit to the changes that God wants to make in our life. But it starts with our thinking. And it starts with what governs our thinking. This morning we read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We read the whole chapter, actually. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we are supposed to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God. That means lay myself on the altar, but not dead. I'm still alive, so God can still use me on this earth. But I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for him. So he says, offer yourselves living sacrifices, holy, that means complete, becoming mature, perfected in Christ, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's the least that we could offer God for what he's done for us. And when I say the least, it means our entire lives, not part of our life, not a few hours here and there, not an occasional sacrifice. It's everything. And unless we have that mindset, holiness is out of the question. So it starts with a change in our thinking. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 goes on. He says, be not conformed to the world, but be what? Transformed. That means your thinking is changed, not just a conformed to another standard. It's a total transformation, a different thinking process. He says, be transformed through the renewing of your mind. How is our mind renewed? By giving it something new. If we fill ourselves with the world and the things that we've always done, nothing will ever change in our thinking. 
But if we fill ourselves with the new truth that God has given us in his word as compared to the old truth of the world, things will change. They have to because our minds become transformed. So that transforming of the renewing of our mind, and then he says, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. We will never understand what God has actually called us to, either in his will or in holiness, until our thinking changes according to God's truth. And if we don't spend time saturating ourselves with God's truth and bringing it in, nothing will ever change in our thinking. Now, when you read the Bible, it's not about, well, I did my Bible reading for today. I read three chapters, so I'm a better Christian now, right? I mean, how many of us have ever thought that? I have to admit, there were times in my life I did my Bible reading, I struggled through it, and I got through, you know, four chapters of Ezekiel, and I closed the Bible. It's like, whoo, wow, I survived. All right, I feel like a great Christian now. That doesn't do anything for us, okay? What does something for us is when we read it, And we realize this is God speaking to me, and I need to change. I need to let him change me. Because if we never get that message in reading our Bible, then we're wasting our time. It's doing nothing except building knowledge, which does nothing for us, except make us proud. So it starts with an internal process in changing our thinking. Now, why is changing our thinking so important? The rest of the message, I want to focus on one aspect of what God uses to build or create or produce holiness in us, and that is our conscience. Now, I have to admit, I listened to a message by John MacArthur uh, a couple weeks ago. I re-listened to it yesterday, and it, it convicted me because there was some truth in his message about conscience that I hadn't thought about. I really didn't take it seriously. And so I'm going to borrow a little bit from his message, but as I share some of the truth of God's word with you about holiness, and I want to focus on the conscience, because what is our conscience? Our conscience, as we know, is that little voice inside of us that tells us what's right and wrong, right? Okay, but how does it know what's right and wrong? Well, first of all, God has instilled in all men his moral law, So by instinct, because we are God's creation, we know generally right from wrong. That's our conscience. If if that wasn't true, no one would ever talk about a conscience. Okay, But basically, your conscience starts with what God has already instilled in us as far as what's right and wrong. Every civilization in history has had this basis of God's moral law. And, And you know, murder... That's wrong. It was wrong from the beginning. It's always been wrong. I mean, people generally accept the fact that murder is wrong. Why? Where's that written down? Well, it's in the Ten Commandments, right? Okay, what if we didn't have the Ten Commandments? Would it still be wrong? What about Cain and Abel? Was it wrong for Cain before they had the Ten Commandments? Absolutely, because that was God's moral law. Okay, stealing, adultery, lying. I mean, all of us would agree, yeah, those are wrong. How do we know? Because that's God's moral law. It's the standard by which we live. Jesus gave another one. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He told that to the disciples. He told that to other people. He said, this is not holiness. This is not Christianity. He said, this is the basis of society, just getting along with each other. There's nothing special here. In fact, 
Uh, we're told in Scripture that, you know, if we just do that, then we're no better than the heathens because they do that. So there's a moral law that God has given us that everybody kind of accepts. Now, we don't call it the golden rule all the time. Some people call it the rule of karma, right? You've heard that. What goes around will come around. If you want it to happen to you, do it to other people. If you don't want to happen to you, don't do it to other people. General rule of, of what we call karma or paying it forward or whatever you want to, label you want to put on it. But it comes back to the golden rule that, God, that Jesus gave us. But we already knew that. He was just reminding us because that's part of God's moral law. So those are all the things that since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, everybody understood the basics. Even without the law of God literally being given to them, we knew that. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. And he's talking about they understand the law even though they don't have it. The law was given to Israel. There were many Gentiles who never heard the law, never knew the law. They didn't know what was written in, on those commandments. And yet, they still lived by a lot of those things because of their conscience. Verse 15 in Romans 2, he says, "...which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing." Now, there's the function of our conscience in, in Romans chapter 2. We know what's right and wrong inherently. And so our conscience tells us what you're doing is wrong or what you're doing is right. Okay, based on the law of God. He's given it to us. He's given it to everybody. And so the Gentiles are a perfect example. Even though they didn't have the law, they lived by what was right and wrong according to their conscience because God had given them that. So we're all given a conscience by God, <clears throat> excuse me, to guide us regardless of whether we're saved or not. Everybody has a conscience. We all do. The purpose then of our conscience is to warn us when we're about to cross the line. Right? Now when people talk about having a clear conscience, what does it mean? I've done nothing that violates my conscience. That doesn't mean they're right. It just means they've done nothing in their view, that's wrong. But it doesn't mean they've done no wrong. It just means they don't see it that way. But the purpose of our conscience is to warn us when we're about to cross that line. And it has nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. We all have it. I'm going to share an illustration with you. In 1984, there was a a major plane crash. It was an Avianca Airlines jet that crashed on its approach to the runway in Madrid, Spain. Now, the approach path was a difficult one. It had, the, the pilot had to kind of maneuver through several mountain ranges and hills in order to approach the runway. But with the direction from the, the control tower and with the, the bearings that he was given, you know, many pilots had been able to do that safely. This one didn't. And the plane hit three hills, one with the wing, one with the landing gear, and then it hit head-on and cartwheeled, and most of the passengers were killed, most of the passengers and crew were killed in this plane. Now, like any uh, plane crash, 
investigators want to try to find that little black recorder box, right? So they went and found the recorder box. What they found on that shocked them. When they played back the recorder box just before the plane crashed, the automatic warning system in the plane could be heard saying, pull up, pull up, pull up, because the plane was too low based on where the hills and mountains were around it. And the pilot was heard to respond several times over a minute or two, okay, okay, he said it in Spanish, he was a Spanish pilot, but he said, okay, okay, but the plane never pulled up, and eventually he turned off the warning system, and minutes later, he hit the hills and crashed. Why would he ignore the warning system? Because he thought he had made the right judgment and that the warning system was faulty. They couldn't interview him because he was dead. But based on the information they got from the the little black box, he decided, I know more than the warning system. I'm not going to listen to it anymore, and he turned it off. Now, there is a great picture of people in our world, and and even Christians, because God has given us an automatic warning system called our conscience. And too often in our life, we want to turn it off or ignore it. Nah, it's not a big deal. Quiet. I'm going to do it anyway. And many of us respond to our conscience just like that pilot responded to the automatic warning system. Now, I just read Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says our conscience either accuses or excuses us. When it accuses, that is God telling us that we have crossed the line. If our conscience excuses us, there's two options here. Either we're right in what we did or our conscience is misinformed. You can train your conscience just like you can program a warning system. That warning system is in the plane was programmed to work with the sensors to know when the plane was getting too close to land and therefore would warn the pilot, pull up. And our conscience is the same way. However we program it is the way it will respond. Now, when we're born with a conscience, God gives us his program of basic moral law. But what we do afterwards to reprogram that can change how we respond and how our conscience warns us or not. When we're guilty, our conscience is supposed to give us peace. I'm sorry, when we're not guilty, our conscience is supposed to give us peace. Right? But when we're guilty, have you ever had a guilty conscience and it just wouldn't let you alone? You couldn't sleep? You just couldn't focus? It just nagged and nagged and nagged? And some people, okay, I'm tired of this. Just shut up. Be quiet. Leave me alone. Right? But we should respond and say, you know what? I need to listen to this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul's telling Timothy, that those who reject their conscience will suffer a shipwreck. He's talking about false teachers in the church that Timothy had to face. And he says they basically abandon their conscience. They know what's right, but they're going to continue to do what's wrong, and they're going to suffer shipwreck. And they're going to be turned over to Satan by God in that shipwreck because God's going to allow them to suffer the consequences of ignoring the conscience that God gave them. So think of it this way, our conscience is our God-given guide 
and our God-given warning device that we're on a path to spiritual shipwreck. If we don't listen to it, we are about to crash. Think of it as the spiritual correlation to pain. Why do we have pain? Because our body's telling us something is wrong, right? I remember when I was about eight years old, my father used to do uh, stained glass with the lead, and he had the soldering iron, and he made beautiful lamps. And I used to love to watch him cut the glass and put it in the forms and then put it all together and watch the soldering iron melt that lead, and it would run down in between the, the seams of that lamp and just fill in and flow, and it, it was beautiful. And it was amazing to me that he could melt metal. I mean, at eight years old, I was just amazed by that. And my dad kept telling me, whatever you do, don't touch that soldering iron. Don't touch that soldering iron. And I would ask him all the time, how hot is it? How hot, how hot really is it? And I remember one day he put it down, and I was standing there. He walked out, and I figured, I'm going to find out how hot it is. And I didn't grab the handle. I grabbed the tip with both fingers, and I felt pain because I didn't listen. So our conscience is that pain that God has given us, an internal pain to remind us or to tell us we're about to crash. You're doing something that's wrong. And holiness begins in our conscience. Holiness begins on the inside as we allow our conscience, first of all, to be correctly programmed by God and his word. Now, I mentioned the warning system can be programmed. Our conscience can be programmed. If you look at the world around us and see all the evil that's being perpetrated, and if you look at Congress and the laws that are starting to be made in states like Washington and California about homosexuality and abortion, God says those are sin. But to them, it's just normal life. Why? Because they've reprogrammed their conscience to the point where sin is okay. You know, years ago, there was a documentary that showed on MTV, and I don't watch MTV, but it re-aired on PBS. And basically, they went to the MTV audience and presented to them what the Catholic Church would call the seven mortal sins. Okay, If you commit these sins, then you've lost your soul, basically. And it, things like greed and immorality and all of these things. And so they presented this list to the MTV crowd. And af- after interviewing hundreds of people, basically the conclusion was all these people thought, well, these are good things. These are things we live for. And this is what the Catholic Church has been saying for years is the, uh, the, the immortal sins. You, you lose your life for them. Okay? So the world and our culture has reprogrammed their conscience. And so those things to them are no longer bad. They're good. And we do the same thing in our lives as Christians. We want to reprogram the conscience when God convicts us of something. Instead of saying, yes, Lord, I know that's wrong. I need to let you take it out of my life. Things need to change. My thinking needs to change. We go, you know what? It's not a big deal. I'm not going to deal with it now. And then God comes back and he reminds us again. Now, you know what? I'm not going to deal with it now. And eventually we just turn it off. And so we're reprogramming our thinking basically to ignore God and his truth. But our conscience is that internal voice that God has placed in of us, in us that tells us what's right and wrong. And it's programmed initially by his moral law, but it should be programmed again and, and fully according to his truth and his word. Now, 
even if we understand God's truth, even if we have God's moral law in place, our conscience is never going to be perfect. Because we are a fallen creature. We have a sin nature, and that taints everything about us. And so our conscience is never always even going to be perfect, even if we have all the right stuff. But it's the beginning. If our conscience is programmed right, and we respond to it, then God will use that to set us in the right direction and keep us on the right path. We shouldn't equate our conscience with the voice of God or the word of God because it's not. Again, I said everybody has a conscience, whether you're saved or not, but it's that element that God has put on us as a warning system. And like every warning system, it has to be programmed to recognize danger first before we can avoid it. That's why David wrote in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart, finish the verse, that I might not sin against thee. Reprogramming our conscience, our thinking. Okay? So holiness begins inside, but it begins with reprogramming our conscience according to God's truth. So if you want to put it this way, in 1 Peter chapter 13, I'm going to read, I'm sorry, verse one, chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. The picture that he gives us here is an old practice in Bible times where they would gather their robes up. They would wear long robes, and when they were going to run or do work, they would actually pull the back up around between their legs in front and then wrap a belt around it. So it was like shorts at that point, and then they could work and run and do whatever they needed to. And that's exactly what... Peter is saying here, gird the loins of your mind. Okay, get things under control. Prepare yourself for the work that God is ready to do and wants you to do so that you can be holy. So holiness, then, is the result of the truth of God informing our conscience And our conscience then directs and guides us and warns us in life to do what is right and to stay away from evil. But it starts with what's inside. What is our thinking? That's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be filled with God's word. And the results of that are the same as in Ephesians 5 when we're filled with the Spirit. They're parallel passages. In one, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Spirit. The results, then, in both cases are joyful hearts that overflow with musical praise to God, singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord, a consistent thankfulness to God, and the third result of that is submission to each other. Now, the first two, we can go, oh, yeah, I got, I'm I'm thankful, I praise God all the time. How about submission to each other? Well, yeah, okay, I need to work on that one. We all do. But that's a mark of the Holy Spirit being there. That's a mark of being filled with the word of God. That's a mark of our conscience being programmed by God's truth, submitting to one another. An uninformed conscience in a Christian makes him a weak Christian, or what I would call a baby or immature Christian who is not able to discern what's right and wrong because his conscience hasn't been informed by God's truth yet. You may have it in your brain, 
but you haven't applied it in your life. So informing our conscience is not just about knowing it, it's about letting it be applied. Spiritual maturity really has nothing to do with your age or how long you've been saved. I've said this before. It has everything to do with how you have submitted yourself to the truth of God and the Holy Spirit's work in your life. We must let him use the word of God as his tool that transforms first our thinking and then changing our living so that more and more our conscience reflects the truth of God and the word of God and the image of Jesus Christ in how we live our lives. But it all starts with our thinking. Let me give you an example. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's dealing with the issue of meat offered to idols. And I'm not going to give you the whole discourse. But he basically says, if you are somebody and you're invited to somebody's house and they serve meat, and you bring a friend along who may be an immature Christian or doesn't understand things quite yet, and he's condemning the Corinthians for this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, first of all, you who are going to eat this meat, you know that there's nothing wrong with the meat. You know that just because it's been offered to idols, it doesn't change the nutrition of the meat. Nothing physically has changed about it. It's just as nutritious. There's nothing wrong with it. You know that. And then he says, knowledge puffeth up. So he's changed the tone of the whole conversation right at the beginning. But he says, if you go and you bring a friend who doesn't know that, and you find out, well, this meat's been offered to idols. He says, you have one of two choices, basically. You can not offend the host and just eat the meat because you know there's nothing wrong with it. Or you can not offend your friend who, once he finds out it's meat offered to idols, is like, I can't do that. That's bad, right? It's been given to Satan. And Paul concludes and he says, don't offend your friend. Don't offend the weaker brother. Why? Because if you violate his conscience, and if you make him violate his conscience, you have sinned both against him and against Christ. Did you sin in eating the meat? No. The meat wasn't the sin. The sin was you didn't care enough about your brother and his conscience to sacrifice what you thought or what you knew to be okay. See, and that's how important our conscience is. Paul says you violate someone else's conscience and cause them to sin, you're sinning. And here's the biblical problem, or the the problem with many of the contemporary churches. They have replaced biblical teaching and biblical principles that God gave us in his word and the teaching and preaching of those things with Dramatic presentations, concerts, gimmicks, circus acts that they hope will draw in large crowds. Because the preaching of the word of God doesn't bring in people. Okay? And what we've ended up with is a whole bunch of people in church who don't care about holiness, who are not being taught about holiness because they're not being taught the word of God. They're being told what they want to hear itching ears so that they feel good after they go to church. They're not being warned about sin, and they're not being given anything to program their conscience the right way, according to God's truth. 
But anything other than God's truth that we use to train our minds and our conscience will only yield unholiness. Now, there's no middle ground here. You either are moving toward holiness as God uses his truth to change you and to change your thinking as you submit to him, or you're moving toward unholiness as you make your own decisions based on whatever you think is right. That's it. You can't have a third option. And that's why we have such a plethora of self-help literature and programs that being propagated in churches today. I mean, you go to a, church, a, a big church sometime that you know, is, is light on the gospel but heavy on the entertainment. And in the announcements or in the bulletin, it's like, you know, okay, self-help program number one will meet on Tuesday night, and self-help program number two is on Wednesday night, self-help program. Why? Because they're not getting the truth to program the conscience right, to change their thinking. And so their lives are falling apart, and they can't figure it out. We're going to church. We're listening to what they're saying, and nothing is working out. So now we've got to have all of these self-help programs. And those aren't going to help either because we can't help self God has to do that. But if you're interested in becoming holy, then it starts inside by reprogramming your conscience with God's word. Now, the reason our world is in such a deplorable state of sinfulness and the reason why the church is following right along behind it is because we've abandoned God's moral law, number one, as the standard for our conscience. And number two, we've let the world reprogram our conscience to accept whatever happens and whatever we want. Now, if you think back, many of you, some of you, I hope, weren't alive when they banned Bibles and prayer from public schools, okay? Prayer specifically. That was not a turning point in our history. People look at me when I say that and go, what are you talking about? That was huge. Okay, yeah. Why did that happen? Because millions of families had already abandoned prayer and Bible reading in their homes. It wasn't important to them. And so the children that grew up in those homes had an unprogrammed or a miscorrectly programmed conscience and went out into the world and did whatever they want. And then they became the teachers, and they became the politicians, and they became the leaders in our society with a worldly programmed conscience because the home had abandoned God and the Bible and prayer way before it ever happened in the schools. And what we're witnessing now and experiencing is the after effects of a world and a church that have just crashed into the side of a mountain because they would not listen to the initial warning that God gave them. That's it. This is a long process of just turning off the conscience. See, if you're truly interested in becoming holy as God has called us to be, then you will start and never stop filling your mind and life, not just your mind, but your life as well with the truth of God. Soaking it in and then practicing it, submitting yourself to the truth so that your conscience won't become defiled. Paul tells Timothy this in Titus chapter 1, verse 10. He gives him examples. He says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. He's talking about the Jews 
whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. How many of our politicians, let let me digress from politicians, how many church leaders are in it for the money? Forget the politicians. In verse 14 in Titus 1, he says, This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men. You've heard that again? Remember Paul, or or Jesus said that to the Pharisees? You'd rather accept the commandments of men than God's word? He says, don't give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And then he says, "Unto unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. The mind becomes the primary point of function in holiness. It has to be programmed the right way so that our conscience is correctly informed so that it can guide us according to God's truth. Now, it's not enough, as I said, just to know the right things. You have to submit to it. And so holiness is cultivated as we submit to the truth of our conscience. That's where it starts, is a submission to the truth. That means I accept everything that God says as absolute, not just, yeah, I believe it's true. I accept it as an absolute, it is the only truth, it is the only path that I can live, it is the only way I can have salvation, and it's the only way that God can build holiness in me. And not just parts of it, all of it. 2 Timothy 3 tells us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction and righteousness. We want to skip the correction and, and, and reproof. We don't want to hear that, right? We just want to learn more. Yeah, this is great. I want no more of the Bible. What about the reproof? What about the correction? If we don't let it correct us, we're wasting our time. But in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, when Paul is giving this to Timothy, he's specifically talking about Jews who knew God's word but for, uh, for just real, uh, absolutely refused to submit to it. They knew it. They knew it backwards and forwards. They could quote the law to you. They could quote all 613 laws from the law. To them, they lived it every day perfectly, and yet they didn't submit to it. And that was the condemnation that Jesus gave them. And he said, you're clean on the outside, but inside you're defiled. You don't care about the inside. You have all this knowledge, but it hasn't changed anything inside. All it does is create a performance standard, which you have to live up to. And it created a performance standard that they judged everybody else by. I mean, we say, don't be a Pharisee, right? What does that mean? You go around judging everybody else, right? You look at everybody else, and you haven't lived up to the standard. And what we're saying is, you haven't lived up to my conscience. When in some cases, they may not even know what's right and wrong, and yet we're still judging them. In other cases, it may be that God has directed them and given them truth that to them... Something is wrong. Or it may not be wrong. But in our conscience, we look at them and say, you're wrong, you violated my conscience. And the problem with that is, number one, they don't know what our conscience is directing us to. And number two, we don't even live by our own conscience. And so that makes us hypocrites. 
So if we say we have this standard of holiness and we're going to follow God's word, we go around accusing everybody else, but we know in our own hearts that we are sinful and we continue to disobey God in certain things that we just don't want to deal with, we are Pharisees, just like Jesus was talking to in Mark chapter 7. So holiness begins with submission to the truth about yourself. Not the truth about other people. And if we're so focused on what other people are doing, we're not concerned about holiness at all. Because holiness starts here. And the word of God tells us what we really are. And if our conscience is informed by the word of God, then it will continue to remind us what we really are. And here's what we really are. We are worthless, rubbish, that deserves nothing except death and hell forever. That's what we all are. If you can't accept that, there's no way you can be saved. Because that's where you have to get first before you realize the need of salvation. Now, being saved doesn't change that. We're still worthless rubbish that can't do anything good in our lives. But we have Jesus Christ now, and we're forgiven for all of that worthless rubbish. It doesn't make us better people. It doesn't make us better than anybody else, and it certainly doesn't make us everybody else's judge. But it brings us into the possibility now of becoming like Christ as he does his work in us. And how do we get there? Stop trying to be good. Stop trying to be better than everybody else. Stop trying to meet my own standard. Let God use his word to change me inside so the outside starts to change. That's the attitude of a mature believer. And that's the attitude that should come from an informed conscience. I am worth nothing. Here's the amazing thing. I've heard people say, you know, if I see this so-and-so in heaven, I'll be surprised. That's the wrong attitude. The attitude should be, you know what? I'm going to be surprised if I'm there because I don't know how God could save me. I don't deserve it. None of us do. But if we have the attitude that, yeah, I deserve to be there because I'm a good Christian. You know, I exude holiness out of my pores. That makes us a Pharisee. And I can guarantee you, the Pharisees that Christ condemned in Mark chapter 7 are not going to be in heaven unless they repented. But it's that attitude of, I am holy. God has blessed me with an aura of holiness that I can bestow upon others. That's about the most sinful attitude a Christian could ever have. And that attitude alone will cause you to miss the calling that God has called us to in holiness. If you think you're holy, you're not. If you consider yourself to be thankful and a praise-filled Christian for what God has made you to be, and then you turn around and treat other people with scorn and disdain and criticize everything they do because they violate your conscience and your standard, you're the Pharisee. And that's what Jesus said. Holiness begins with a submissive heart 
so that God can change the inside. In Romans chapter 1, verses, verse 16, Paul says, The gospel is the power of God into salvation. A change in thinking. We accept the truth of the gospel. That's what brings the power for us to be saved. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this morning, verses 13 to 16, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, the truth. Fill your mind with the truth. Be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, that means submissive children, teachable children. He says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. If you live that way, if you're going to be that way, if you're going to be that person that condemns everybody else, that judges everybody else, that thinks you're okay, that's ignorance, Paul says. He says, don't be that. That's what happens when we have an uninformed conscience, or we don't listen to our conscience. But verse 15, but, but here's the contrast, as he who is, who which hath called you is holy, so... Be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That means in every area of life. Be submissive to God. Be mature in your understanding of Scripture. Be mature in submitting to Scripture. And let it change the way you think and live. Because, as it's written, be ye holy for I am holy. Your desire for God to develop holiness in your life starts with letting his truth become the standard for your conscience. And if you keep reprogramming it or turning it off, you cannot claim to be interested in holiness on God's terms. It starts with our conscience. We have to listen to our conscience as it's informed with God's word, and we have to pull up when God warns us that we're about to crash before it's too late. But if you keep turning off the alarm so that you don't have to listen to the warning that you're off course, then literally you are headed for spiritual disaster. And I don't want to see that happen to anybody. This is not me preaching to you. This convicted me. And God is speaking to you the truth of his word as well. We need to stop saying, okay, 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 to the warning voice and pull up before it's too late. And start listening to God's truth and living by it. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you've given us this warning in your word and these examples in the Pharisees who are negative examples for us. We should not follow them, but so often so many of us behave the same way. We condemn other people because we see unwashed hands. And yet, you know the heart. You know our heart. And Lord, I pray that you would take your word and just convict us because all of us are guilty. There are things in each of our lives that you know are there, that you know need to be changed, and we've been ignoring the warning system for so long. Lord, help us not to turn it off. Help us not to ignore it, but to pull up before it's too late in our lives. We love you. We know you love us. So help us to live like we love you and listen to you. 
and we'll praise you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is 334, Be Thou My Vision. Three hundred thirty-four.